Echoes of petition. We're on this today. Here's the word of the day. Petition. Say petition. Anybody made any petitions recently? Do we know what the word petition means? It's actually a multifaceted word. It has multiple definitions. Let me give you one. Petition can be as simple as a request made for something you desire. A request made for something you desire. A simple, friendly request for something you desire. So in this respect, a petition can be as simple as a friendly negotiation. <laughs> anyone, anyone, anyone made uh, any negotiations uh, recently with a friend? Anyone, anyone, anyone? Come on. Raise your hand if you made a negotiation with a friend recently. I just want to see. I want to see. Okay, nobody. That's great. This is going to land perfectly fine on all of us. Any game players in the room? Any, any game players in the room? Uh, you see, negotiating with a friend. Uh, any, um, I'm told, is Pastor Brett in the room? I'm, I'm told that like, he knows what's up when it comes to games and negotiation. Any settlers of Catan players? I don't even know if I'm, I'm allowed to say this stuff in church. I don't even know if it's okay. Are these good games to mention? Maybe they're not even good games to mention. I'm not even sure. Uh, I've heard that's a huge negotiation game. I love, uh, how, about, how about this one? Apples to apples, the game that has no rules. Anybody, anybody? Like that's all <laughs> negotiation. Like I love winning that game because it's all about whoever can, whatever, you got me. How about this? Uh, how, many, how many family nights have ended in great trauma after not being able to finish Monopoly? Anyone? Anyone? Like, let's go. More family spats have arisen over bankruptcy, over play money, I'm telling you right now. You see, I'm not a big game person at all, but I can be suckered in very, very quickly to any game that involves negotiation. Oh, come on, let me have it. What are we trying to do? What are we trying to acquire? What are we trying to get after? I can, I can play along. So, uh, so what happened for me a couple of years ago after avoiding it for a really long time, hear me, I didn't want to be sucked in. A couple of years ago, I finally accepted an invitation to join a fantasy football league. Anyone? Ay, ay, ay. Anyone, anyone, anyone engage in this? practice. Anyone? I see, I see your hands. I'm amazed, as a matter of fact, how many people are doing this. Anybody think it's like so silly? You can't even get, so anyone, anyone, anyone? Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely absurd. Don't get bit by it. It's grown men. Never mind. You don't even. You see how it works is you draft a team. 
You draft a team and you score points based upon the team that you roster, and you see these players perform real games on the weekend. Based on their real games, you get points, and then you're competing with other people who've drafted teams. You see, when your team doesn't do well, though, you're able to trade with other team owners. Now, this is where it gets fun, all right? So if you draft a great team, that's cool and all, and you can just run the play and whatever it is, you know, but when your team starts to wane, when someone gets hurt, now all of a sudden, like, it is on. Like, now the game for me actually starts. Let's do this. And so here's the deal. It's, it's been fun. It's been fun. I probably spend 10, 10 15 minutes a week on it, honestly. And um, I don't talk about it much, but I would, would want you to know I am the proud manager of the Harrisburg Mahomies. <laughs> Harrisburg. I do have Harris. He's not doing well this year. Mahomies, you figure it out. And it just so happens that I happen to be the defending 2021-2022 league champion. Oh, my word. Unbelievable. Much to the chagrin of my friends and much to my surprise. But as we know, what? What goes up? What goes up? What, is the, what's, what happens? What goes up? How, how does that go? It must what? Come down. You see, my team's fallen in a little bit of hard times this season. By hard times, I mean 0 and 8. <laughs> it turns out I have like the six most points scored of a 12-person 12, a 12 league. It just so happens that I play the one team every week that can beat me. Every single week. And the thing you need to know about me is I'm not super competitive. It's just that I really, 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 really hate losing. And so the fact that I'm like 0-8 right now, like this past week, like it is on, it is time. And the, thing, the fact that you can now get the negotiations going, I've been running the 10-minute play and I realized that's not working. Keep doing the same thing over and over again, expect different results, like you're crazy, I've heard that somewhere. So like this week, I went full used car salesman on all my friends. <laughs> Literally, dissembled the entire team. I think I have three players left from the original and I am just blowing up people's phones. Like, come on, come on, bro. Like, you don't need five running backs. I got a, I got a guy here for you. Do I have a guy for you? <laughs> Hasn't done squat on my team, but he's going to tear your league up. Let's go. And so you can imagine, you can imagine, you can imagine how these negotiations have gone. You know what they say? It's nothing like a good negotiation amongst friends to find out who your true relationships are. And so how do you think these negotiations went? They're going to when you negotiate with friends, you can leverage your relationship, right? You can leverage your relationship whenever you negotiate with a friend, right? 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 They're going to take it easy on you, right? Say wrong. <laughs> my text thread was filled with gifts. As I was pitching my trade, and I could almost hear the laughs, feel the pity, taste the sarcasm right through my phone. What's the point? When you're negotiating with a friend, it's super cash, when negotiating with friends, you can have fun, sort of, right? When negotiating with a friend, all of a sudden, like, let's just say my English teacher would say, the diction, if you will, is low. But you see, the second definition of petition is this. It's not simply a friendly negotiation. The second part of petition, the second type of petition is this, a respectful or humble request to a superior or to someone in authority. Now, we've all been here. We've all maybe negotiated with a friend, like I need, I need this or I need that, but when's the last time you negotiated with an authority? Like you leave the text thread at home. You don't really use the gifts. Like the bros and the dudes and the... If it's a boss, you schedule a meeting and you enter and you speak professionally. If it's a teacher, it's Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. Hey, if, if you would, I, just, I would just... If I may, I would like to discuss my grades, right? If it's with your parents, right? If it's your parents and you're really... If it's with your parents and you're really trying to get somewhere, you know... Like soft tones and yes, mom, and like yes, dad, or like dearest father could work, Aaron. Try that on, on your dad, all right? All right, maybe not, maybe not, but you, you get the point. The point is this negotiating or petitioning with a friend or an authority figure is different than negotiating with your friends. But here's, here's the question what happens when they're both? 
Like, like when you're in a fantasy league with your pastor, right? What's the point? While my fantasy league shows me no mercy, interacting with a friend who's also an authority figure, if you will, in your life can be incredibly awkward. Can you feel it? Have you been there? How do you address them? How personal do you get? What kind of jokes can you make and shouldn't you make? Is he going to laugh at this gift or isn't he? Is he going to get the joke? Do we talk business? Do we talk life? Do we ask as a friend or do we never ask because we don't want to mess up the relationship? Do you make the call or do you not make the call? Is this, is this call a friendship call or is this call a business call? We have all navigated this tension at some point, at somewhere, in some relationship in life. And now we come to the culminating question of all. What happens in the midst of petition when the person whom you are coming before, the person whom you are making your request of, the person who you are actually doing, if you will, some negotiation with, happens to be your most intimate friend and the most supreme authority in the universe. I think you know where we're going. The third definition of petition is this, to make a prayer, a supplication, a request to God for Jesus himself in John chapter 15 calls you his friend. How how deep of a friend is Jesus? So deep, he says, that greater love has no one than this than he lays down his life for his friend. Jesus is your friend. But in the same breath, he's your friend, he's your friend, he's your friend. But hear this, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. He is also the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see in his grandeur. To him be honor and glory and dominion and eternal power forever and ever. Amen. Wow. How do we negotiate this? Oh, man, I love hearing people pray. This past Friday night, we had a men's prayer and worship night, and to hear voices and I find myself oftentimes in attention because I'm drawn in by guys. Ladies, you too, for sure, who can just pray so reverently. Have you been around people who pray like that? It's like they have this keen awareness of how huge God is, and, and they seem somewhat formal, but yet there's an appropriateness to their formality because they're coming before this sovereign God who can literally crush him, but he doesn't. But then at the same time, I could be in the same prayer meeting and I'm so moved by the person who's like just so casually just kind of pouring their heart out to God as if he's, as if he's not on a throne but sitting right beside them. I admire the reverent prayer, and I've got to be honest with you, I'm sometimes jealous of the person who's able to do this. The question is, which does God want? Which does God want? What does God prefer? Have you ever been conflicted in your approach to the Lord? Which does he want? Which does he want? Does he want to be addressed as intimate friend or infinite father? Infinite father or infinite, in, intimate friend? Intimate friend or infinite father? Which one is it? Which one is it? You know the answer. Say yes. Yes. You see where God wants to be addressed is in the intersection of 
intimate friend and infinite father, where these two things meet at the crux of that intersection is exactly where the Lord longs for us to be as we enter into his presence. Today, as we come to Genesis chapter 18, we're going to see in the life of Abraham how God delights in hearing our prayers, however they come. We're going to see how God brings himself low so that Abraham can actually speak with him face to face as a friend. Yet the requests that he makes are only possible through a sovereign king. Today in the life of Abraham, he's going to teach us how to petition God as an intimate, infinite father and an intimate friend. Are you ready to find this intersection? Are you ready to bring your petitions to God in a manner that pleases him? If you are, just say amen. amen. Genesis chapter 18, you know the text. Commentator after commentator agree that Genesis 18 is the clearest picture of this tension. Here we see, even as we pick up from where we were last week, Abraham engaging with God as friend and king, as friend and infinite God. You remember the text. Let me catch you up. Verse 1 of chapter 18, the Lord appears. He's walking with two messengers, the Lord, a Christophany, if you will. Every reason to believe this is Jesus himself, a Christophany. It says the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. As Abraham sat by the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, what does he do? He runs, he runs out of his tent door to meet the guys. He, he runs, he runs, he runs as a friend would run to meet a friend, right? But then what does it do? Once he gets, he runs as if meeting a friend. But as soon as he arrives at said people, he immediately, the text says, falls on his face. Here we see God. Friend. King. Keep reading. Now this, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord God, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Reverence. Now this, the little water be brought to you that it may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass since you have come to your servants. Here, here he offers them a meal as he would offer it to a friend. But at the same time, the meal that he's going to bring is going to be a meal worthy of a dignitary. Here again, you have friend and God. So much for a morsel, he brings a feast fit for a king. They sit down to eat the meal, the three men that is. Abram standing on, and check this out, God then engages Abraham as an intimate friend. Yet, the conversation is going to go firm like an infinite father. Watch, keep reading. And he said to him, where's Sarah? Where's Sarah, your wife? Of course, we know where Sarah is. Where's Sarah? Somebody tell me, where's Sarah? You're right, in the tent. She's in the tent. She's within earshot. So the Lord says to Abraham, so Sarah can hear, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him, and now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years, and the way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. Again, very discreet, very, a very kind way of saying what needed to be said there. And so what does Sarah do in response to overhearing this because of, because of her circumstance? She laughs to herself. She doesn't even laugh out loud, but to herself she says, are you kidding me? After I'm old and worn out, now my Lord, now my Lord and he is old, Abraham's old too. Now we're going to have the pleasure of having kids. And the Lord says to Abraham what? Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Listen, listen, listen. Abraham, is anything to hard for the Lord. And we talked last week how in that moment Sarah's heart is melted because she didn't laugh out loud. And so we noted how the Lord came near 
and was able to see into the depths of Sarah's soul yet still receive her. He was able to see her fear and her doubt but yet still remain and still call her to himself. And so we pick up the text now in this context. A meal has just been consumed. Here as the text goes on, God in this posture of infinite God and intimate friend continues to interact with Abraham carrying on this very context. And so here we see, here we see point one, God continued to interact with Abraham as intimate friend. As Abraham now speaks with God, he relates to God as an intimate friend. By the way, having shared a meal is a very personal thing. When you invite someone to your house and you, begin, and you labor and you pour in and you think about what do they enjoy, what do they like, how can I communicate my respect for them, how can I communicate my love for them, how can I, how can I make something that's going to bring great pleasure and delight and joy to them, there is nothing more personal than sharing a meal with another person. And so what I don't want you to miss is this, is in the very circumstance and the context that we pick up this text, the fact that Abraham and Sarah are, yo, they make dinner for God. They make dinner for the Lord. That's what the text, can you imagine like, And the fact that the Lord, while sitting at their table, like essentially welcomes Abraham into the conversation and addresses Sarah is just unbelievably beautiful. It's an incredible moment. Abraham essentially, if you will, eats with God. There's a meal coming like this, you know. The Bible talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb that's going to happen in the last days where the church will gather and dwell and dine with Jesus. Abraham kind of knows what that's like. Can you imagine that? So the meal's over, verse 1, or verse 16, pardon me. And so the men get up, and they set out from there, and they look down towards Sodom, when you hear the word Sodom, immediately you tense up if you know the Bible. There's a foreshadowing of sorts already in the text just by the mentioning of the word Sodom. Notice the men get up, all three, if you will, it says, the men set out from there. They looked down to Sodom and check this out. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Not only does he get to eat, if you will, with the Lord, now he joins an elite company of men. Only two or three before him have ever had the privilege to actually physically walk with God. Come on, Bible trivia, who's the first one? Obviously, Adam walked with God in the garden. Now who? Enoch. Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, it was said of Enoch, Enoch walked with God and was no more, for God took him. He never saw death. Genesis chapter 6, what do we know? Noah. Noah walked with God. And so what do we have? We have another redemption story. We have another redemption story that does what? Points back to Eden. Points back to the beginning. Here in this redemption story of God starting over when he could have destroyed the earth again like he had in the flood. Instead, what does he do? He calls Abraham and he starts over, if you will, and he's going to use him. And even here, you have this imagery of what? Abraham having this fresh start, having this fellowship with the Lord. And now what is Abraham doing? you imagine this? Um, one of my favorite things to do, it's harder where we live now, but it has been over the years. One of my favorite things to do has been to take walks with my wife. When you take a walk, things kind of slow down, don't they? 
you drive through the neighborhood day after day after day after day, but when you walk, you see things differently. There's a sense that on the walk, life slows down, it almost has to, and what do you do on a walk? What do you do on a walk? You talk. Have you ever been on a walk and you just didn't want to talk? Have you ever, have you ever had just a long day and the walk was just kind of extended and it was kind of just like a, and you both kind of got it and you both kind of understand you know, the other day, Robin and I, we weren't walking, but we were riding in the car. That's like favorite thing number two to do because we're shoulder to shoulder, dashboard's coming, we're, we're just sitting with one another, and there's a sense that just being together, the two of us in the car, is just a sweet thing. And I was going to, a, we, I was heading to a speaking engagement, I had the privilege, of course, of having my wife beside me, and there was this sense that it was just quiet. And we were both kind of resetting ourselves, if you will. And if I'm honest, I didn't want to talk at all. My mind was kind of filled with all the things that I was going to need to tend to when we arrived to where I was going. When all of a sudden, probably after 20 minutes or so of just not angst at all, just calm, Robin spoke. How are you doing? It was everything my soul needed. There's something about being engaged in conversation. There's something about when someone else comes to you and speaks first, expresses their desire to want to engage with you in a conversation. They are concerned with what's happening in your world. There is something unique. And what I want you to note here is Abraham is walking with God. And as he walks with God, you're going to notice this. God speaks to Abraham first. The Lord speaks to Abraham first. What does he say? The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Shall I hide from you what I'm about to do? He asks a rhetorical question. How interesting. <laughs> anybody else, anybody else kind of taken by the fact that God speaks in like rhetoric, like uses, like asks a rhetorical question like this? The Lord said, shall I hide from you? Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. Listen, listen, verse 19. Shall I, shall I withhold? Shall I withhold from my friend? Shall I withhold from Abraham? For I have chosen him that he may, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised promised him. The Lord speaks first. The Lord comes to Abraham first. The Lord reaches out first. And essentially what the Lord is saying is this. I, I, as, what do you share with a friend on a walk? You share about your day. You share about how things are going. You know the other thing you talk about? This is so fascinating to me. We talk about our plans on the drive to where we were going. How are you doing? What, what, what is going to be the plan when we arrive where we're going? You see, friends, friends talk about their plans with friends. And what God is essentially saying here is this. Can I withhold my plan from Abraham? Can I withhold my plan from my friend. And you might look at the text and say, Pastor, I'm not sure I see the word friend in the text. Well, that's because you got to look again. Look, 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 look. The word for I have chosen is yada in the Hebrew. The word for I have chosen is yada in the Hebrew. It means to know intimately. 
It means to know intimately and deeply. And what he's saying is this, how can I keep my plan from Abraham? For I have made him my friend. I have brought him close. James chapter 2, verse 23 says this, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God. And it, was, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now check this out. For he was called a friend of God. For he was called a friend of God. And this is the very moment that James chapter 2 is talking about. Where it is clearly demonstrated and portrayed. When God called him. When he drew him to himself. What he was essentially doing was making Abraham his friend. Some of y'all have a difficult time understanding friend. Some of us have not had the best of friends. Some of us have not always been the best of friends. Some of us really has a difficult time thinking that the sovereign God of the universe, you're not even sure you like what we're talking about right now, like friend? Really? Yeah, friend. Like a friend, like like a real friend. What I want you to note, though, is this. Notice how Abraham became God's friend. I have chosen him. I chose him. I have chosen him. The way you become a friend is you have... You, you meet someone, you make an introduction. When you become somebody's friend, somebody has to, has to stick their hand out. Hi, hi, my name's Jerry. Dave, pleasure to meet you. I would like for us to be friends, even though we're already friends. For the sake of illustration, let's be new friends, all right? We'll be new friends. The fact of the matter is when, there, when a friendship arises, an introduction has to occur. And so you come and you, you reach out a hand and you say, hi, my name's Jerry. Dave, nice to meet you. I I hope that we can be friends. Here's the deal. What I want you to catch is this. In God's economy, the way that you become his friend is that God chooses you. God is the one who actually comes and reaches his hand out to you. God chose you. You didn't choose God. When you were at enmity with God, when you were an enemy with God, here's the deal. Like God actually like reached down from a, come on, from afar, came near and grabbed hold your hand. God God chose you. God chose you. You did not choose him. This is crucial. The best you did is respond to his invitation because he softened your heart when he reached out his hand. The first Bible verse I ever memorized as a kid, I remember it very, very well. 1 John, 1 John 4.19. We love, we love, we love, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Friends, this is every one of our stories. This is every one of our stories. Every friendship begins with an introduction. And every friendship with God begins with God introducing himself to you. Has he? It's all of our stories. If you're a Christian, it's your story. You know a moment when God introduced himself to you. For Abraham, he was minding his own business in Ur as a complete pagan. Living a life as a pagan, thinking like a pagan, wishing for things like a pagan would wish. Not looking for God at all. When all of a sudden, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Abraham. I will choose you. I am choosing you. There is an irresistible extension of hand that comes, which everyone who is called by the Lord will reciprocate and take. If the Lord has called you, bend your knee now, for you will not resist him long. For me, I was a little boy in Altoona, Pennsylvania, sitting in a little VBS class at Altoona Bible Church when Jean and Helen Miller, twins, twin ladies who were missionaries in the Philippines, were calling each child out of the classroom one by one to have a conversation with them. 
They weren't doing it together, so to this day, I don't know if it was Gene or if it was Helen. They were identical twins. I have no clue. I have absolutely no clue who to give credit for introducing me to Jesus, but one of those two ladies came to me at the youngest of age and said, Jerry, I, I need to, I need to, we need to ask you some questions. Here are my questions. And again, I was just a little guy, but a seed took root and the seed grew and the Lord used it. And I grew in faith with the Lord, but there was a sense where God introduced himself to me through Jean or Helen, or maybe there was a triplet, who knows? But one of them one of them reached out of their hand, if you will, and it was God himself reached out his hand. The question is, how about you? When did the introduction come? If you're not sure, God might have you here today because he wants to introduce himself to you. I mean, you came all the way to church Abraham was a pagan in Ur who wasn't looking to go to church. But somehow or another, somebody got you here today. If you're a friend of God, how do you know? If you are a friend of God, how do you know? You're a friend of God. You know you're a friend of God because God will do with you what friends do. If you're a friend of God, God will do with you what friends do. This may seem so foreign to some of us who were raised in such like staunch, strict, religi like religious tradition. Like, God, you'll know you're a friend of God because God will do with you what friends do with one another. Again, at the intersection of infinite God and friend, I'm not trying to make him your boyfriend. I'm saying, though, he is your friend. What does a friend do? What does a friend do? A friend speaks. A friend relates. A friend, a friend, a friend, a friend shares their plans with one another. Check out the text. Shall I withhold my plan? We can know we're a friend of God the same way that Abraham was able to realize he was a friend of God. God reveals his plan to his friend. Check this out. And Jesus himself promises that this is what friends do. Jesus himself said, you will know you're my friend, not only because you love one another, but because you will know my plan. Check this out. John, John chapter 15, verse 14. This blew my mind this week. No longer do I call you servants, Jesus says to his disciples. Why? For servants do not know what his master is doing. You see the difference? Is Abraham a servant? Say yes. Is he, is he called to serve the Lord? Say yes. Uh, is he also, is he, uh, are you a servant? If you are, say yes. But you see, people who are just servants don't get to know the master's plan. Watch. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. What? I can't not tell Abraham. He's, he's, it's a rhetorical question. Shall I not? I've called him. I've called him according to my purpose, God is essentially saying. Friends, don't miss this. Friends share plans with friends. God shared his plans with Abraham. Did he share all the nitty-gritty details of all the plan? No, but as his friend, he shared the details that he needed to know. God was saying, how can I withhold my plan? I've called him. I've made him a promise. I'm going to bless him. Now that I have made him a promise, I have also given him a purpose. And so for him to fulfill that purpose, I need to reveal my plan to him because because I'm going to use him to bless the nations. And how can he bless the nations lest he know my plan? Does any of this sound familiar? God's going to use Abraham to bless the nations. And all of this is possible. Why? Because Abraham has been made a friend of God. If our world is going to be reached, it's because you recognize you're a friend of God.
I want you to catch this today. God made you a friend for the same reason he made Abraham a friend. God made you his friend for the same reason he made Abraham his friend. God made us a promise of salvation through Jesus. God's revealed his plan to us through his word. God has chosen us as he chose Abraham to do what? Reach the nations. God is building his church. Why? So that the nations of the earth can be reached. God has chosen you and he's made you his friend so that you can extend his invitation for more friends. God has made you his friend and revealed to you his plan. Why? So that you can extend his hand of grace, the gospel of grace, to people who desperately need it so that they too can become friends of God. How are the nations going to be reached? What I love is this. Check out the text. God begins to reveal the actual, net, the very first step to his plan. I'm going to use you to bless the nations. I'm going to use you to bless the nations. I'm going to use you to bless the nations. I'm going to use you. Abraham, I'm going to use you to bless the nations. Now here is step one for the plan. By the way, I'm going to tell you a, a part of the immediate plan that's going to blow your mind. It's going to be difficult to hear. But I just want you to know what you need to do next. Step one in reaching the nations. What is it, God? Get my passport. What is it, God? You want me to go to seminary? What is it, God? Reaching the nations. All right. You want me to learn how to preach? Oh, come on. At the very least, lead a small group. Come on, God. What is it? What is it? What is it? What's the first step to us reaching the nations? Oh, my word. Check out verse 19. For I've chosen him that he may do what? Command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord, so that the Lord, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him to do. What's Abraham's first step? Go home. Take care of your family. The first step to reaching the nations is to build a godly home. The first step to reaching the nations for Abraham is to build a godly home. How is Abraham going to become a godly nation? He's going to grow a godly family. It's godly family is going to become a godly nation. How do we have a godly nation? We have godly homes. Even on this election week, how do we have a godly nation? Oh, yes, we're going to do our part. We're going to cast the ballot, that's for sure. But, oh, Christian, if you are relying on the election booth and you're not discipling your household, you are a hypocrite at heart. Done. If we can see the speck that's in the eye of all of those who lead us, but we can't see the log that's in our own eye, as we abdicate our role in discipling our homes, we've missed the first step of what it means to reach the nations. We all, all of us, all of us, all of us, it's within all of our power because all of us have an influence. All of us have a scope. All of us have a primary call to ministry. If you're married, it's to your spouse. If you have children, it's to them and to your children. If you are single in our church, we love you. This is your family. Pour into one another and allow the family to pour back into you. How do we reach the nations one household at a time? That's what God says. That's what God says. He's to command his children and teach his children. Are you catching how profound this is? Beyond leaving his home and going to a land that God would show him the key to becoming a great nation was to disciple his kids so that his kids would become friends with God. One of my biggest fears as a dad is to chase after God with my whole heart and overlook my children who are at home. I had a really busy week this week. And my two middle boys asked my wife, when is daddy coming home from his trip? Daddy wasn't on a trip this week.
You see? Do you see? Do you understand what I mean? Me first. Me first. God's plan is to grow a strong family who becomes a strong family of families. It's always been his plan from the beginning. Check this out. It's a family who loves God and loves one another. It's a family. It's a family full of friends. It's a family who loves the Lord, a family who speaks to him as an intimate father. And now this point too, as an, as an intimate friend, but also this as an infinite father. intersection of intimate friend and infinite father. Here's the deal with an infinite father. One of the rules of a, of a father is to protect. God is about to go in full-blown protection mode here. Check out the text. Verse 19. Come on, I've chosen you, and now I need you to understand I'm about to invoke righteousness and justice. And so the Lord says to Abraham, verse 20, righteousness and justice because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Here's the deal, Abram. I can't, Abraham, I can't withhold my plan. Plan one is, come on, you take care of your family, I'll take care of the world, and I have some business down in Sodom and Gomorrah that I need to take care of, and I need you to be aware of what's happening there so you don't think that I don't have a plan. It's going to be difficult for you to hear and for you to watch and for you to see, but the reality is my thoughts are not like your thoughts. My ways are not like your ways. You take care of your family. I got the world. When we read this, our minds immediately go to what we've been taught about Sodom and Gomorrah. More to come of this in the coming weeks, but today, what do we think of? We think of a certain kind of sin immediately, don't we? Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom provides the basic word for the word sodomy, dealing with abhorrent sexual acts. We think of sexual sins immediately when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's good reason for that, but what I want you to catch is this. If that's all you think of, you completely miss the depth of what's actually happening here. To think in this category alone is to completely miss what the word outcry means here. Outcry. I got to go down and see if the outcry that has come to me is, is as it sounds. The word outcry, zahachat, it speaks of a cry for help. Exodus chapter 22, the word outcry speaks of the oppressed, the orphan, and the widow. It speaks of the cry of the orphan and the widow. Deuteronomy chapter 4, this word outcry, it speaks of the oppressed servant who is being abused. Jeremiah, it speaks of the oppressed and the brutalized. What is happening here is a torture of a, of a grand magnitude against all of mankind. But here's the problem. They're doing it to one another. There's none righteous. Nahum Sama in his Torah commentary writes this. These words speak of the anguished cry of the oppressed, the agonized plea of the victim for help in the face of some great injustices. In the Bible, the terms outcry that are in this text specifically are suffused with poignancy and patho, with moral outrage and soul-stirring passion. It's coming from the depths of need. You see, the sin of Sodom, he goes on to write, then is a heinous moral and social corruption that is throughout the entire fabric of it all. It is an arrogant disregard of basic human rights, a cynical insensitivity to the suffering of others. The entire world, the entire city, if you will, was completely abusing and oppressing. They were completely taking advantage of one another. There was none righteous, no, not one. And by the way, this word oppressed, 
it would have triggered the original audience immediately. Because outcry is the word that is used of those who are enduring slavery in the Exodus. Remember the original audience? Moses wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, to the God, God's people on the banks of the Jordan ready to go in. They would have said, hey, we understand that. We've been oppressed. We've been under it. We know what it's like to be tortured in this way. We also know what it's like to be released. You see, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah hits differently when you're a people who sees yourself embattled for the Lord. The original audience would have read Sodom and Gomorrah very differently than you and I read it. We read the account of Sodom and Gomorrah very differently when we realize the breadth of sin, the oppression and utter darkness that consumed and moved all the people of the city to prey upon each other. Do you ever feel like you live in a society that continues to prey on one another? Like just when you think there's a righteous side, you watch that side pray the other. What I want you to notice, though, is this. Look at what God says. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. If not, I will know. Here we have God in a personified form. God walking, if you will, upon the earth. Notice, he does not avoid, but he moves toward the sin. God does not judge from far away. God does not judge from afar. God does not judge from afar. God does not judge from afar. He came near. He went and saw for himself. He is, listen, listen, he is willing to come near. He was willing here to come near the darkness with the hopes that some might be saved. That's what the Bible says. For he wishes that none would perish. And in a personified form, he comes near. And exactly what the text says. If, there, if, it is not, if it is not as the cries are calling upon me, I will know as soon as I walk upon that place. I'll know. I'll know. I'll know. But what you see God in his mercy and grace personifying for us as humans, this understanding that God is willing to come near even in the depths of our sin to introduce himself that the righteous may respond. And so, check out what happens next. Maybe you know this part. And so the men turned from there, verse 22, went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Imagine this scene now, it's just you and the Lord. And then Abraham drew near and said, ready? Take a deep breath. God just said he's going to go like, take care of business at Sodom and Gomorrah. You got it? And Abraham drew near. Abraham drew near to God. And he says, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Lord, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away that entire place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Lord, Lord, Far be it from you to do such a thing. You put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Oh my word, Lord, far be it from you. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And just like that, Abraham, God's friend, sets himself in the place of infinite father because apparently he knows love, grace, mercy, and holiness better than God himself. Lord, really? Really? How bold is Abraham right now? And what I want you to notice is this. Abraham is not asking for God to spare the 50 people. 
That's not what he's asking here. He's like, hey, oh God, would you spare the righteous people there? That's not what he's asking. He's saying this, if there are 50 people there, would you not spare the whole thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other people? If there are 50 people there, wouldn't you spare the whole city? He's not asking for the righteous to be spared. He's leveraging the righteous for something else. Abraham is working an angle. Do we know what it is? Verse 27, well, first, verse 26, how gracious is God? And the Lord looked at him and said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. All right. Yeah. All right. You got it. We find 50 righteous people there, I'll spare, I'll, I will spare the whole deal. And by the way, conversation should be over, right? Conversation done. Like, we're done. We got no much. Okay, good. Deal. A deal's a deal done. No more, no more. No more negotiation. I, you, you, you offered, I accepted. We're done. Isn't that how this works? Well, if that's how it works, nobody told Abraham. Check it. Well, Lord said, if I find 50, it'll be. And Abraham says, he answered and said, Behold, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord uh, who I am but dust and ashes. Okay, okay, all right, I appreciate that. You weren't dust and ashes a minute ago when you thought I was unjust. Suppose five of the 50 are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of the five? And look, look, he's, and God said, Nope, I won't destroy it for the, for the 45 either. Oh, Really? Okay, well, now I'm on a roll. How about, how about, how about, how about, how about 40? How about 40? 50, 45, 40, 40, 40. How about 35? 35, 30? 35, 30? 35, 25? 35, 25, 20? 20? Like, what are you, an auctioneer? You're going the wrong way. Like, this is serious. Like, what is he doing? Like, what is happening here? And the whole time, he's like, I know, I know, I know. Like, don't, uh, infinite father, like, no, please don't do this. But at the same time, he's kind of working this angle, if you will, of like treating God like a friend. Like, I, I'm going to leverage this relationship. I'm going to kind of get in here. I'm going to kind of work an angle and get what I want. What in the world is it that Abraham wants? Keep reading the text. Watch, watch, watch. Verse, 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 verse 31. And he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found. And he answered, For the sake of the 20, I will not destroy it. Now 32. Then he said, Oh, oh my word. I got one more for you, God. Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again. But just this once more. Suppose, God, that there are 10. Suppose there's 10. And God says, for the sake of the 10, for the sake of the 10, I will not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And what I want you to catch today is this. So often we think of the text of Sodom and Gomorrah and we were consumed in our minds by the judgment of God. And what I want you to catch right here in this verse is this, is that the Holy just, sovereign God of the universe was worthy for thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pagan, heathen, oppressive, violent, dark-souled, evil individuals, lives to be spared, to for 10 righteous individuals. Do you understand the depth of God's patience? He is not slow. He's patient. This entire text needs to be turned on its head. God was willing to withhold judgment for 10 righteous people. But the error on Abraham's part here is not desiring for God to show mercy. What is Abraham's error? It is believing that God wasn't already acting in his holy 
ways. It's believing that he knew better than God. It's believing that God hadn't already, in his infinite knowledge, already discerned what was the most merciful act to bring forward. God sees it all. God will protect his friends. God will do what he needs to do to bring his plans to pass. How arrogant of Abraham to think he could be more merciful and loving than God. God sees it all. God's fulfilling his will. God's doing what it takes to reach the nations. God is a heavenly, fatherly protector. He's protecting his people. He's protecting his friends. He is protecting his friends. And in reality, who is Abraham thinking of? Who lives in Sodom? Lot. Why not go less than 10? Lot, his wife, spouses. The reality is Abraham was already bailed out Lot not once but twice and now he's seeking to bail out Lot a third time. The problem is Abraham dare not go any lower than 10 because to go lower than 10 would have declared all of Lot's household as unrighteous too. I don't think he wanted to know. And I think there's a reason why he was just seeking for some righteous people to spare the whole earth or the whole city is because I think in his heart of hearts, he was concerned what? That maybe even Lot wouldn't have been counted amongst that number. And so what is he praying? God, Terry, oh God, wait. God, don't destroy it yet. Oh God, would you please hold on? There's still somebody that I love. There's still somebody there. There's still somebody who needs you. There's still somebody that that I've been crying out to you on behalf of. There's still somebody that I've been investing in. There's still somebody who I long to see come to know you as their Lord. I call you Yahweh, Lord and Savior. Oh God, would you please? He was very clumsy in the way that he did it. But what I want you to notice is this. God receives Abraham's petition. And while Abraham didn't do it the best way, God heard. And God, Abraham did not come right out and petition God, God for Lot specifically. But yet, what we're going to see is God is going to allow Abraham to go rescue his friend. Friends, what I love about this is Abraham was concerned about one. And what we find in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is this, God, too, is concerned about the one. God introduces himself to one person at a time. God always rescues and saves. God always is the one who introduces himself to the one. Not by 50s, not by 40s, not by 30s, not by 20s, not by 10s. You become a friend of God one person at a time. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to know him as Savior and Lord. Would you come? Would you respond? Would you meet him at the intersection of infinite friend, intimate friend, and infinite father? God's always willing to rescue the one. The story of grace is the story of us all. And so, Father, we pray. Here in this place, Lord God, even as you extend your invitation to those who desperately need it, 
Father, even to those of us who are reminded of the invitation that you have extended to us, oh, how we respond and worship to you. Oh, how we need your mercy. And so, friend, if you are here today, we don't use the word friend flippantly. If you are here today and the Lord is reaching to you, if he is prompting you in your heart, if you know in the depths of your soul that you have not responded to his sovereign grace, would you bend your knee? Would you reach out your hand? Would you receive the invitation of salvation today? God is able, God is able to withhold his judgment on you because he cast it all upon his son on the cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and he rose again three days later that you may have life. What does it take to respond to the invitation of God? Tell him you know you're a sinner who's in desperate need of a savior. Tell him while you have doubts, you need him to fill the void of unbelief that you long to live for him. He will make you his friend. He will protect you as an infinite father. Judgment will pass you by and you'll be welcomed into his presence for all of eternity. Friend, do it now. Do it here. Pray. God, would you make it so? Help people to respond in this place and receive your mercy, we pray. In Jesus' name.